Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Tom Quiggin joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Former Canadian military intelligence officer, arms control inspector under the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, uh, former intelligence contractor for the RCMP, the United Nations, and a court-certified expert on security and terrorism. His book is Submission, and uh, the podcast is The Quiggin Report. We talk to Tom frequently when these issues come up. So, Tom, thank you for the time. We have U.S. President Donald Trump pulling the United States from the so-called Iran deal. One of the key concerns with the treaty was the weakness of the inspection regime. Mr. Trudeau, along with the U.K., Germany, and France, lament the decision, Israel and Saudi Arabia in favor. Meanwhile, Stephen Harper, former Australian Prime Minister John Howard, and the former Prime Minister of Northern Ireland took out a full-page ad in the New York Times supporting Donald Trump's decision. And uh, Israel and Iran have come to blows. So paint the picture for us, Tom. What is going on? Well, fascinating situation, Roy. Let me just first say, you, uh, we'll go a little quick little side-sticker. You talked about Omar Khadr. Here's a fascinating little thing in Canada today. If you're someone like Omar Khadr, who commits terrorism acts overseas, the government of Canada believes that your human rights, your Canadian basic rights, follow you around the world while you do this. Ironically, however, if you're a Canadian citizen and you're a victim of terrorism overseas, they will do nothing for you. Anyway, that's just a little sidestep, just to go back to Omar Khadr for a second. But to get back to the main focus on Iran, you're quite correct to point out that the treaty itself, or this so-called treaty, which was never actually... Uh, approved by the Congress of the United States. One of the greatest weaknesses it had is the verification process that goes with the actual core of the treaty, which is Iran's nuclear weapons production capability. As you mentioned, I used to be an arms control inspector under something called the Conventional Forces in Europe Treaty, and that was an intrusive, on-site, short-notice arms control treaty where we could literally show up pretty much anywhere in Russia, Belarus, Poland, uh, you know, wherever, and on very short notice, do complete inspections of entire bases. When I read the Iranian treaty, I was absolutely gobsmacked, to use the British term, um, to realize that, like, some of the notice periods were measured in weeks. There were restrictions as to where you could go in the country, and they actually suggested that Iranian inspectors should be used to do some of the inspections. So, Mr. Trudeau and others have said, well, you know, the treaty is being enforced. And the reality is uh, there is absolutely no confidence created by this treaty because the enforcement mechanism is absolutely crushingly weak. So where do we stand uh, in this country? Where does Canada stand? We're on, on, on the side of the European countries that somehow believe the treaty can continue when, as you pointed out, it never really was a treaty to begin with, but the Europeans believe it can continue, and Mr. Trudeau has squarely put us on their side and squarely told Donald Trump policies made in Ottawa, not in Washington. Our policy. Yes, well, it's interesting you mentioned the Europeans. Over in Europe, there's a lady by the name of Federica Mogherini. She is the high representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy. Kind of a fancy title, which essentially means she's the foreign minister and the national security advisor for the European Union. She's an interesting soul in the sense that she is literally a former communist. And I don't mean she was crazy in her youth. What I mean is she was a, a member of the Communist Youth Federation of Europe when she was younger and then moved to Brussels and, and now has emerged at the age of, I think, 40 as the head of the European Union Foreign Affairs section. She literally openly states that Islam has a role to play in Europe, and that includes political Islam, which is to say the Homanius, the Muslim Brotherhood, Hizbut Tahrir, etc., etc. And she is the one who rather infamously stated after the Paris terrorist attacks that diversity is not the problem, but it's the fear of diversity. So that's kind of the, the sort of folks that Trudeau was aligning himself with, is the European Union and Frederica Mogherini. Now, if you look at Trudeau himself, you mentioned that he has a sort of a long-term uh, love affair with the Iranians, and it's quite true. Back in 2014, Justin Trudeau gave an interview to a newspaper in Montreal called Sada al-Mashrek. 
So as a member of parliament, he was talking to a newspaper which is known to be homaneist in nature. It supports Iran, it supports Hezbollah, etc. And he told them that if he was elected as prime minister, he would create a special immigration program that was more open to Muslims. And this is to, like, an Iranian-supporting newspaper. So that gives you a rough idea where he's at. But the really interesting part of this is not Trudeau. The, the fascinating bit behind the scenes is his brother, Sasha Alexandra. He was appointed to an advisor to Justin Trudeau, I think, back in 2012 or something like that. Uh, but what's fascinating about him is he actually worked with Iran's state-owned press TV to produce a fawning documentary about Iran called The New Great Game, which basically said, you know, the Iranians have a defensive nuclear program, they're a great bunch of guys, why is everybody so worried about Iran? Um, didn't, funny, that, didn't that air on the CBC? Uh, I'm not actually sure where that aired. I, th- I think no, it, it might have. Yeah, entirely possible it did. Now, the, the other thing is, Sasha Trudeau did another documentary on a guy called Zachariah Zubaidi. Uh, interesting guy in that he's head of something called the Alaska Martyrs Brigade in the West Bank. And it portrayed him as like a Robin Hood kind of character. But what, what doesn't get mentioned in the documentary, of course, is the Martyrs Brigade is called that because it's famous or infamous for suicide bombings. So here we have Trudeau, who is openly sympathetic to the Iranian regime, which is arguably... Uh, one of the worst governments in the world, no matter how you cut it, whether it's looking at democracy or mm-hmm. human rights or the rights of gays, the rights of women, whether you look at their justice system or whatever, it's just a really horrible country. It's a theocratic dictatorship, and it's just a truly awful place. Now, if you talk to Trudeau and the Europeans, though, and you ask them, well, why are you so interested in dealing with Iran when they have this absolutely miserable human rights record? You get the economic discussion. Well, it's a country of 70 million people. We have to bring them into the economy and all all this kind of normalization talk. But I would point out, here's the issue. Most of Iran's economy now is controlled by something called the IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Council. They own about 700 companies in Iran, and that includes most of the comm sector, the tech sector, and the manufacturing sector, particularly that which supports the military. Since this nuclear Iran deal was signed back in 2015, the argument has been Iran should be open, they should be allowed to trade in the world, they should be part of the SWIFT system, which allows for the transfer of funds around the world, and this will make Iran a better place, more prosperous, and, you know, and a better place to live. What's happened, however, is most of the money that has been generated by the Americans giving them a couple of billion dollars in cash... Uh, as part of the Obama deal, and as well as the opening of the markets and the uh, dropping of sanctions, is that the IRGC has made most of the money, and the money they're making, they're pouring into adventures in places like Syria. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Talking about Justin Trudeau, and uh, specifically Canada now not backing the United States, and Donald Trump's decision to remove the U.S., from the so-called Iranian deal and returning sanctions to Iran. Interestingly, Stephen Harper and uh, the former Prime Minister of Australia, John Howard, and the former PM of Northern Ireland took out, a, and other former leaders globally, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times supporting Donald Trump. And uh, it reads in part... Uh, Yes, Iran is a danger to us, to our allies, to freedom, and we stand alongside you, as in Donald Trump, in ending the dangerous appeasement of Iran and making all and any action required to stop Iran going nuclear, help its people, halt its spreading of terror. There was also the story of Alison Azar. Remember, Alison was on this program. Her four children were abducted by her husband, who was an Iranian uh, refugee to Canada, became a Canadian citizen, a doctor here, and then abducted the children back to Iran. And Allison told us that Mr. Trudeau had put his arms around her in his office and had pledged if this was the last thing he was going to do, it was get, to get her children home safely. And the word that we had, and we talked about it on the air with Allison, uh, is that there was opportunity. The Iranians had the kids, had the doctor, and said, what do you want us to do with, with the children now? And the word is it didn't get any further than the RCMP um, having the option to, or at least having the opportunity to say, yes, 
release the children back to Canada because from the prime minister's office, the word came, do not interfere. And when Alison Azar's case was brought up in Parliament, Stéphane Dion, the former uh, leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, gave her thumbs down. He apologized for that eventually. There's some strange, strange stuff going on. Uh, Tom Quiggin is with us, the Quiggin Report. Tom, uh, what about the uh, what about this letter by Stephen Harper and John Howard and the former Prime Minister of Northern Ireland and other former political leaders saying to Donald Trump, we're on side with you. Where, where does that fit into the mix? Well, it's an interesting situation, Roy. Um, a number of folks around the world uh, are increasingly looking at Iran as the single greatest security threat to the Middle East and as increasingly as the single greatest exporter of extremism and radicalization, especially through things like Hezbollah, through uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, and through the Al-Quds Force, which even Canada lists as a terrorist group. Uh, so this threat is emerging throughout the Middle East and throughout uh parts of South America, throughout parts of Europe, etc., etc., and increasingly in Canada. Uh, unfortunately, like you mentioned, we have young Mr. Trudeau, um, who is a great believer in Iran and has a, a very good working relationship with the mullahs, and then we have much of the rest of the world, which is taking a much harder view. It's interesting in the sense that Mr. Trudeau... And Tom, Trudeau I have, Tom, I'm sorry, I have literally 30 seconds. Oh, okay. Well, I think probably the most important thing to look at here is... Trudeau wants to reopen the Iranian embassy here in Canada. Iranian embassies are known around the world for their control and operation and support of Hezbollah. So by opening the Iranian embassy here in Canada, we're actually literally inviting greater control of Hezbollah. The Americans will see this as a threat. They are very upset. And as you mentioned, the cancellation or the downvote of Bill F-219, the day after Donald Trump withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal, was a huge finger in the eye to the Americans and a warning to them that we're going to side with Iran over America in a lot of these cases. Okay. That, I think, in the long run, is a security threat to Canada if the Americans Tom, decide to retaliate. Tom, thank you so much. The Quiggin Report is where you'll find Tom Quiggin. And the book is submission. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. How many times have Northerners had to be the unintended consequence? It shouldn't be that way, Kathleen. It shouldn't be that way that that Northerners are are not taken into consideration in advance of policy changes coming. I have taken your advice. I have listened to you. I have sat in many of your offices, and you have given me advice that has led directly to policy decisions. Andrew, are you there to protect the people of the North like I am? Or are you there to protect your extremist environmental friends that have nothing to do with the North? Well, there was debate number two, part of it, a little part of it, with the uh, main party leaders in the province of Ontario, first voice that of Andrea Horvath, and then, um, um, what's her name? What's her name? That's it. Kathleen Wynne and uh, Doug Ford (laughs) looking at me in the studio like, what's wrong with him? It's called having fun. So, uh, because we have to have a little bit of fun with the election campaign as well. And many are suggesting that what's happening in Ontario now and what we'll see on the 7th of June is actually going to be a precursor or will be seen as something of a precursor for next year's federal election. And probably what will happen next spring in Alberta will also be viewed as a precursor to next October's vote federally. Anyway, let's deal with what we have now. And that is the Ontario election campaign is underway. Several days, two debates already. And joining me on the program is Daryl Bricker, CEO of uh, Ipsos Public Affairs, global TV commentator and author of the big shift. Daryl, thank you for the time. And, and what has registered with you so far? And if I may ask, what's registered with you as a voter, and then what's registered with you as a professional pollster? Well, as, as a voter, you know, it's a secret ballot, so I'll keep that to myself. Um, but the, uh, as, uh, as a professional pollster, uh, looking at the dynamics of the campaign, um, it doesn't look like anybody's so far found a way to stop Doug Ford. Uh, and that's really the story of the campaign. He hasn't stumbled, he hasn't caused himself any sorts of problems, and he hasn't had any problems brought to him yet. 
to uh, really question whether or not he's in position to win the election. So the issue of building on the green belt, or do you know what actually how a bill gets through becomes becomes law, gets through the the legislature? Those are little speed bumps on the road that he's been able to push aside effectively. Yeah, they really haven't had an effect. And you know what? The usually the first part of every election campaign is about whether or not the government uh, deserves to be reelected. And we saw in the last federal election campaign that uh, people made up their minds really fast on that with Stephen Harper. And the real election was about whether or not it was going to be Thomas Mulcair or, or Justin Trudeau that was going to replace Harper. I have a feeling that we're sort of getting into that territory now in the Ontario election. I mean, anything can happen. There's, a, there's four weeks to go. But uh, the Liberals are running out of time to make themselves relevant in this campaign. It's, it's really turning into a race between Doug Ford and Andrew Horvath. How bad could it get for the Liberals? Well, um, they've got a certain core support, but the the problem that they're experiencing right now is that in their attempt to move so far to the left in order to be able to attract people who normally vote NDP, because there's a a progressive coalition and there's a conservative coalition in Ontario, and the progressives are the liberals in in, in the NDP. Uh, when they get behind one party, that coalition gets behind one party is when they beat the conservatives. So what the liberals have been trying to do is the same thing that they did in the last election, frankly, every election that they've been running in this, in this uh, new millennium, uh, and, and that's to move to the left to, uh, to make the NDP irrelevant and then demonize the Tories so everybody who's a progressive voter votes for the liberal party. The problem with that now is they're trying to do the same thing, but the NDP have, has replaced them on just about every issue that matters with voters as the preferred choice. So even though Kathleen Wynne's mightily pounding away at Doug Ford, um, the truth is all it's doing is consolidating support for Andrew Orvath. And to have the elementary school teachers, uh, the union, uh, support the the NDP, that's not something the Liberals, I don't know if they expected it, but it's certainly not welcome news. Well, you know, Roy, you're the first person that's brought it up, and it's something that I noticed right away when it happened, because... The way that the Liberals have won over the last uh, several campaigns is they've really, they've really focused on those unionized public sector workers being on their side, whether it was uh, through you know, interest groups adding uh, advertising in a third-party way or just basically supporting the Liberal Party. They've spent a lot of time courting those groups of the population, and this time they've gone to the NDP. That's a big signal. What, uh, what do you think may have registered with voters in the first few days of the actual official election. Has anything happened that will take voters, uh, have them sitting around the dinner table and saying, hey, I heard this about the election, what do you think? Well, I think a lot of what is uh, going to have an effect on the election was established before the uh, the, the writ was signed by, mm-hmm. the, uh, by the lieutenant governor. I think the real action that's happening in the campaign at the moment is this decision among people who want to stop Doug Ford, what the best option is, the NDP, or the Liberal Party, and they seem to be increasingly opting for the uh, for the NDP. This uh, Stop Ford campaign, how much potential does it have? Well, it has a lot of potential. It really is the only way that, uh, that uh, Doug Ford will be stopped. If there is a consolidated campaign on the progressive side of the coalition to stop him, that means everybody who's voting, either Liberal or NDP, really getting behind that option. And if, if that one of those options. And if that happens, uh, Ford could be in some trouble, but it doesn't seem to be happening enough at the moment. The NDP is gradually moving ahead of the Liberal Party, but the Liberal vote hasn't completely collapsed. All right. What about the soft voter support, Doug? Uh, I'm, uh, what about, I'm sorry, Darrell. What about the soft voter support? I had you Doug Ford there for a moment. What, what can drive soft voter support away? Well, what can drive it away is, uh, you know, obviously some of the uh, some, some policy that people are interested in or some sort of commitment that they're interested in, if, if you're looking at it in a really rational way. But uh, uh, I, I think the soft party support right now is, is the anti-Doug Ford uh, support. Uh, I think the, the conservatives, progressive conservative support is pretty solid right now. It's the anti-Ford uh, uh, vote that, that isn't. So uh, it's, it's that, that signaling from one party or the other that they're the ones who can really stop Doug Ford. Uh, being successful in making that signal, that's where the soft vote has has not yet consolidated yet. Mm-hmm. How would you compare this election campaign to the last one? If we look at the mood in the province today, yeah, provincially, if we look at the mood in the province today, and we were to go back to the last provincial election and take the same time period, how did the mood? How does the mood in the province today compare to what we had then? Well, the, the difference back then is yes, uh, you know, Kathleen Wynne and the Liberal Party started from behind. 
but their deserve to reelect numbers were probably 15 points higher than they are right now. I mean, so it, the, the Liberals did not start as far behind in the last election as they started behind this time around. And I can't remember if it was like the second week of the campaign that Tim Hudak made that that commitment about, uh, you know, 100,000 jobs uh, being removed from the public service. Uh, Doug Ford hasn't introduced that type of dynamic into the campaign the same way that Tim Hudak did. So the, the difference between Hudak and, and Ford is Hudak had a pretty clear, aggressive kind of policy strategy that he was putting out there about what uh, what he was going to do if he was elected, because he was trying to, you know, really consolidate that conservative vote and then ended up destroying it. Doug Ford has done none of that. He's basically, you know, kind of skating through this campaign so far, and nobody's really done anything that's affected his, his vote. Daryl, if you look at demographics, how much of a factor will demographics be going forward to June the 7th? And is 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 gender a potential uh, problem or a potential bonus for anybody? Well, Doug Ford doesn't do as well among women as he does among men, but the, the split isn't tragic. I mean, it's not like we're talking a 20-point difference on Doug Ford between men and women. I think geography is more interesting on this than, uh, than actual demographics. So the geography of the Conservatives having, you know, a, a double-digit lead in the 905, that's really what, uh, uh, you know, on the ground is going to make a difference in terms of who wins the election campaign. And unless uh, somebody's able to pull that uh, double-digit lead back, into maybe the single digits for the conservatives, then, you know, it's going to be really, really tough to beat them. And all the demographics don't matter after that. Okay. Somebody asked me the other day, how do you think things would be if Patrick Brown were still the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario? And I, th- I said, look, I don't think they'd be very different at all. Not yet. Not now. Was I close or not? Yeah, I think you were. I think a, a lot of the decisions about whether the incumbent, uh, the Liberal Party, and Kathleen Wynne should be reelected had already been made at that stage of the game. And so really the question was the auditioning for the, uh, for the replacement. Uh, the difference between Patrick Brown and, um, and uh, Doug Ford is Patrick Brown you know, had his, uh, his, uh, his very clear position on, on, on several uh, policy issues in which he was tacking to the center to, uh, to, uh, uh, um, to, to make sure that, that he, was, he was difficult to attack in the election campaign. Ford's kind of doing the same thing, but it's not in a single document with a single you know, position on all the issues that he thought he might be attacked on. He's doing it one at a time when they come up. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in, in serious terms, there isn't really that much of a difference. Okay, the one issue that I, that I think, just as a voter and as, as an observer, that uh, could really win it um, for Ford is the carbon tax issue, depending on how he plays it. Yeah, you know what's really interesting on that one is that the emphasis of that two-word term has changed over the last year. So the emphasis in carbon tax used to be on the carbon and mm-hmm. now on the tax. Right, right. And if you look at Doug Ford supporters and who they are, they're basically private sector, middle-class people living in the suburbs who probably commute. Those guys are the guys who pay for the, the carbon tax. Mm-hmm. Those are the guys who are feeling like they're overtaxed. Those are the guys who feel like they're the ones paying for all the things that Kathleen Wynne and Andrew Horvath are, are, are proposing in terms of the new policy initiatives. So when they hear carbon tax, they don't hear the word carbon. They hear the word tax. And, and it is a consolidating issue for the, uh, for the progressive conservatives. Well, I filled up my, uh, my card today, and uh, I, I looked at, the, you know, I looked at the, the numbers spinning around, and, Daryl, the first thing that entered my mind was carbon tax. Yeah. (laughs) It was involuntary, totally involuntary. It just came to me. Carbon tax. And when you take a look at what people actually think of the carbon tax now in Ontario, if you're a liberal voter, yeah, you're somewhat more supportive of it. But the NDP voters aren't that supportive of it. And the progressive conservative voters, it's absolutely toxic for them. So, you know, it's really gone through a pretty big transition in the minds of the public since the last federal election when it was, it was kind of an ascendant way of dealing with this issue of climate change. But the problem that you're dealing with in, in terms of how Ontarians think right now, when you ask people, uh, you know, what are the most important issues in the election, climate change is number eight. Taxes is number two. Well, there you go. Boy, that's a loaded gun. Yeah, that really is. Uh, last question for you: uh, Is Ford in majority government territory? Uh, quite clearly. I mean, when you've got a double-digit lead, and we have them 14 points ahead in, in the 905, it's uh, that, that's definitely knocking on majority's door. If we'd said six months ago, Premier Doug Ford, I don't know what the reaction might have been. 
Daryl Bricker, thank you for the time. Always appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Daryl Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. He's also a global TV commentator and the author of several books, including The Big Shift. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Despite all of the commonality between the three of us, we continue to disagree on the question of moving diluted bitumen from Alberta to uh, the Port of Vancouver. Well, there's the Premier of British Columbia, John Horgan. And here is the Mayor of Calgary about John Horgan. It's very clear that Mr. Horgan, who I think is one of the worst politicians that we've seen in Canada in decades. That's Nahid Nenshi. Thanks to uh, CBC's production stuff, we were able to get that. One of the worst politicians in decades. So the, uh, the firing continues across the Rockies, from Alberta to B.C. and back. How is this all going to uh, play itself out? Well, it's a lot more than just Trans Mountain Pipeline because, as you may have heard, the Eagle Spirit Pipeline is a $16 billion venture, and it's sponsored by 30 indigenous communities and their leaders in northern British Columbia. And again, while most of the talk is about Trans Mountain Pipeline, Eagle Spirit is launching a court case against the federal government's B.C. tanker moratorium legislation. Uh, It's also been dubbed the New Northern Gateway. Eagle Spirit has already secured some of its needed financing. Calvin Helene is the president and chairman of Eagle Spirit Energy Holdings. He's a First Nations lawyer and one of Canada's top 40, under 40, and best-selling author. Calvin, thank you very much for taking the time. And, and, And where do you... Where does Eagle Spirit fit into this whole um, morass of accusations and counter-accusations about pipelines, no pipelines? Where do you fit, or are, is Eagle Spirit a completely separate niche? Um, I, I think uh, that uh, we're, we're quite different in, in a lot of ways. We're distinguishable in a variety of different points. First of all, um, what we've looked at doing is creating an energy corridor. The chiefs have, uh, along the route, have endorsed the idea of an energy corridor. Um, the uh, a crude oil pipeline will be part of that. The advantage of a corridor is it gives you um, basically a uh, uh, 30 to 40% discount in the uh, capital expense in building pipelines and associated infrastructure. It gives you a smaller environmental footprint. Um, it allows you to use uh, common utilities in the corridor con- concept. Uh, and the going to the north coast of British Columbia gives you the shortest route to the market and the highest price for Canadian resources, both for LNG and for, for crude oil. And um, on the crude oil pipeline side of things, um, we will not be shipping uh, Dilbit. That was one of the um, basic uh, requests of the chiefs. Uh, they didn't like the idea of, of uh, two pipelines and the Diluent pipeline going back. We will be uh, shipping a, a medium uh, to heavy crude oil that's available currently from uh, the Fort McMurray area. Um, and we will be uh, doing this with um, outstanding technology that exists from um, from established companies uh, in Canada to, um, I understand, be able to produce Canadian oil with a lower carbon footprint than than other um, other uh, jurisdictions, and specifically, there's um, an HTPFP mined bitumen process by CNRL. There's a company called RII North America Inc. that uh, does uh, the has the lowest carbon footprint for in situ mining, and a company called Value Creation Incorporated that does partial upgrading and provides the lowest carbon footprint. Uh, in fact, we think we can be leaders in the world in um, in technology and in 
in carbon reduction. So do you see yourself then not running into the kind of um, objection, the kind of uh, demonstrations, the kind of determination to halt the uh, procedure or the, the completion of uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline? Do you think that Eagle Spirit would not run into that same determined opposition? And uh, do you think that First Nations would not respond to uh, Eagle Spirit the way they are to, or some of them are, to, uh, to Trans Mountain? Well, one of the key issues is, that, is if you have the First Nations whose traditional territory you're going through supporting your project, they're the ones who have the, um, they're the Aboriginal title and the right to um, consultation and accommodation. And so if you have them on side, um, you know, it shouldn't be a problem. And, and that's what we started out doing from, from square one. We, this is a First Nations-led, will be a First Nations-owned project. Um, however, if you, um, if you look at the kind of uh, information that Vivian Krauss has uh, come up with in investigating the um, uh, huge American foundations that are, they're simply trying to shut down any oil coming out of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wealthy foreigners are dictating uh, policy uh, natural resource policy in Canada. You know, so, so let me let me ask you this: Can you can you successfully counter that? And uh, there's a story in the Globe and Mail in which a chief counselor of First Nations in uh, British Columbia is quoted as saying, "I think Eagle Spirit is a big joke." Yep that um, that uh, First Nations uh, counselor is a counselor whose traditional territory we're not going through. Um, the the people who um, who uh, traditional territory are going through have um, have supported the project, and um, there will be and you are you're seeing it right now. There's a lot of um, of pseudo uh, native organizations that are really proxies for environmental groups. The people and, that Vivian Krauss has been talking about. Yeah, there's there's a whole group of them and. Um, they have um, they've clearly decided that um, they're going to stop uh, Canadian energy from reaching international markets. And you know, there's a whole conspiracy idea out there that there are American interests that are benefiting uh, handsomely from uh, getting our resources at uh, at discount. Well, you know, I, I spoke yet last week with Frank McKenna, the deputy chair of uh, TD Bank, and Mr. McKenna pointed out that a study by TD Bank showed that the, the that our selling our oil at the discount that we sell it to to the United States has cost our economy over a seven-year period $117 billion. That's one seven-year period just selling our oil at the discount we sell it to to the Americans because we have no other customers. Now, are you confident? First of all, sixteen billion is a lot of money. I know you've got you've got companies behind you. I but need a re- revised uh, uh, estimate for the um, oil pipeline is uh, twelve billion. Okay, is that that's doable financially? Yep, absolutely. Now, you're also going to sue the federal government as, as far as the tanker moratorium is concerned. Yes, one, one uh, lawsuit has already been filed by the Lamps First Nation on the, on the B.C. coast. There was absolutely no um, consultation, um, and the uh, federal government um, uh, just is bowling ahead with this and in the view of, uh, of a lot of the chiefs and I believe a lot of Canadians in northern parts of BC and Alberta, this is being pushed down the, their throats um, by American environmental NGOs who are dictating policy to Canadians. You know, the idea that uh, there be a moratorium that that, um, that, that area is special um, because it happens to be the uh, link out to the uh, to the markets for for uh, energy from the oil sands in Alberta mm-hmm. is a very convenient thing um, when uh, you're an environmentalist who wants to stop it. Um, you know, I think what Canadians have to ask themselves is uh, 
Is the rest of Canada chopped liver why we can ship oil all over it? Up the Great Lakes, uh, drill for oil offshore on the East Coast, uh, ship oil out of Vancouver. Um, and, and, and we have uh, ships coming from Alaska within a, a few miles of Haida Gwaii every day. It's, it just doesn't make any sense. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Calvin Helene, the chairman of the Eagle Spirit um, Pipeline, the Eagle Spirit Energy Holdings, First Nations lawyer, one of Canada's top 40 under 40, and a best-selling author, as you know. We've talked to uh, Calvin about his Dances with Dependencies book, but now we're on to the issue of the Eagle Spirit Pipeline. And uh, Calvin... So let me ask you this. The industry itself, the, uh, the oil industry, the petroleum industry, the, uh, the mining industry, and the Alberta government, you're going to need to have them both on side, or it would help if you do. Uh, what are you hearing from, from the two as far as the pipeline is concerned? We're uh, hearing uh, uh, very supportive um comments and um, I think action soon coming. Um, see, we, we um, view what we're doing as a nation-building project and uh, they're like, a, to me, um, it, it bothers me since I've been traveling a bit in uh, Alberta and in Saskatchewan to see the division uh, being uh, put between the um, between our three provinces that were always um, good friends and, and shared lots of um, uh, synergies as far as economics and so on goes. And uh, to have this brought about by a campaign of American environmental groups is outrageous. And um, I think that it's, it's time to, um, to um, recognize what we're doing and you compared what we're doing to um, Northern Gateway, or somebody's compared it to Northern Gateway. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not Northern Gateway at all. This is a First Nations-led and owned project. It, from its very inception, the environmental model for this is a model that exceeds everything else in Canada now. The model for shipping oil off the coast hugely exceeds the... Um, the uh, Oceans Protection Plan that's been put forward by the federal government. Um, this is a project where um, First Nations have taken the lead in protecting the environment, and they will be the ongoing environmental stewards of this. It will allow Canadian companies to receive uh, international uh, uh, market prices for their LNG and for their oil, and uh, it will be done in the the uh, most environmentally responsible manner uh, in the world, period. How much, of an, how much of an impact will it make economically on this country? Because we are losing a tremendous, tremendous amount of money that could be flowing into Canada and paying for our, we said this many times, for our social programs, for our infrastructure, for the things that we need to pay. It's, it's there. It's ready to be, uh, to be sold. Our, our natural resources are ready to be sold. Why wouldn't we do that? Other countries certainly would. We're the one that doesn't or is trying not to while we're importing 700,000 barrels a day into eastern Canada. What's the point of that? Um, but uh, how much money would it, how much of an economic benefit, uh, two questions here, how much of an ec- economic benefit is Eagle Spirit and could Eagle Spirit con- exist comfortably with Trans Mountain Pipeline extension? Yeah, the first uh, first question is I, I don't have a number on that, but um, that would solve the 117 billion dollar loss that uh, that um, you referred to Frank McKenna talking about the TD report. Right. Um, secondly, um, we are we don't um, uh, regard ourselves in competition with uh, the Trans Mountain. Um, you know, that's a separate project. The um, the um, limitations of that project are they only can get smaller uh, tankers uh, through into their terminus in um, in Burnaby, and so likely most of that oil will go to uh, the American market. So it doesn't solve the singular greatest problem we have of all of our oil going to uh, America at discounts. 
And when we find out that, that China has just signed uh, huge deals with Brazil for their oil, this is money that could be coming into this country, should be coming into this country. Now, if I recall correctly, you told me last time we spoke that Eagle Spirit could be up and operational within a matter of two years? Uh, not up and op- operational, but through the, um, through the uh, NEB process. Okay. It will probably take four to five years, but um, the way I look at this is kind of like um, the building of the railroads across Canada. Um, this is a really critical piece of infrastructure, and you know, you talked about financing. We had a foreign-owned, uh, a, a big foreign-owned conglomerate that wanted to finance us, but um, after looking at some of their what their demands might be, and the fact that Canadians should own Canadian critical infrastructure. Um, we didn't pursue it further, even though we could have got our financing there. This is something that is uh, critical to the um, well-being of Canada as a nation. I think it's critical to um, healing the division between some of the western provinces in a way that uh, meets everybody's interests from an environmental, from an industry, and from a a government point of view. Okay. So now it's a question of getting, uh, getting it going, and, and, and the lawsuit continues, or at least has been filed, against the federal government's tanker ban. And uh, you can find out a lot more by just uh, going online and searching the uh, Eagle Spirit pipeline, uh, Eagle Spirit Energy Holdings, and Calvin Helene is the president and chairman. Calvin, thank you very much for the time, and uh, I would not bet against you ever. Thank you very much, Roy. Okay. Take good care. There's Calvin Helene. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Mark Bertel is the president of the Equitas Society, comprised of military veterans who launched a class action lawsuit against the federal government for better treatment for pensions and uh, a declared commitment of a social contract with veterans. And it's the Equitas Society... That Mr. Trudeau was referring to, Mark, you, you must love that quote. <laughs> well, you know, I guess what it does, uh, Roy, is it uh, simply identified, uh, finally, Trudeau came right out and said what the issue is and what the obstacle is. It's about money. So it has nothing to do with, uh, with doing the right thing by veterans. Uh, it has more to do with uh, saving money, which is, comes down to one of the fundamental problems that face uh, just about every veteran organization that uh, that is uh, dealing with veteran affairs. They had the money for Romar Cotter. <laughs> yes, they did. Well, they have a lot of money for a lot of things. Uh, uh, but when it comes to veterans, and you know, they commit money to veterans through their budgets. But as we saw in uh, 2015, I believe, the Veteran Affairs returned $1.13 billion of unspent money back to the Treasury. But, you know, I guess you don't is, need that. Like any bureaucracy, you know, I'm sure that a lot of the money that, they, that is committed, you know, it doesn't actually filter its way down to veterans. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. It's not supposed to. It's supposed to be there to make them look good so they can stand up. And I'm not being party-specific here because it's happened to veterans regardless of who's been in power at various times. The conservatives fought you against you just as the liberals are fighting against you. Um, but the veterans are the ones who, who suffer. You come back from combat. You deal with the fallout of the combat. The politicians don't. And then we hear... And in my, in my profession, I talk to people who have come back, and I know some of the things they're experiencing because they share it. They don't share everything. And you know there's a tremendous gap there. There's a tremendous gap. There's a need. It's not being met, but they have the money to meet it. And yet the prime minister would say that you're asking for too much. Where's the uh, – we're going to talk to Aaron Bedard in just a second. Where's the, where's this lawsuit sit, sit now? 
Well, we've uh, we sought pe- uh, leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, and now we're just waiting to hear back from them as to whether they will allow us to proceed or not. What a, what but a mean, shame. But meanwhile, we're doing a lot of things. You know, Aaron Bedard, who's on the other line, who I, you'll talk to in a minute, is uh, one of the strongest advocates on the behalf of veterans in Canada, I believe. And we we work with other organizations because the equitous uh, the things that we're fighting for in our lawsuit are not the only issues facing veterans there are many many issues that uh, that they face but they all have a common source of the of the challenges and it's the bureaucracy of veteran affairs and remember that each veteran each veteran voluntarily signed up each veteran who went to Afghanistan and each veteran who's been in a in a hot zone globally, has gone voluntarily. And they've done it because of their love for Canada and what this country stands for. Aaron Bedard is with us as well, also a veteran. And uh, he's the person behind the first annual walk for veterans, which takes place on the 3rd of June. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the privilege, sir. Thank you. Can you tell us, please, oh, tell us a little bit about about, about you, um, your, your time okay. in the military and... And what was the genesis, the idea for the first annual walk for veterans? Okay, well, I joined in 2002, right after 9-11, and uh, became a combat engineer, frontline combat arms troop. And uh, I had one tour, and that was on uh, 2006, first tour uh, in the spring. And uh, got went over an anti-tank mine in the early part and uh, sustained a brain injury, but I hit it and carried on through my tour and actually survived at the unit for another six, eight months with a brain injury and developing PTSD and spinal damage. And I went through a really slow, uh, disorganized transition out of the Canadian Armed Forces that went on for three, four years. And they lost my file a couple times through that. And uh, it's been a long 10 years. So, um, And I got involved with the lawsuit in 2012. We filed October 30th, 2012. And it's uh, a lot more than I ever imagined it would be, how much would be involved with the social media and the outreach and the advocacy. I just and it, I had to take a, a break there in 2013 and go to an inpatient care facility because I had a bit of a breakdown from the amount of pressure I had initially. And But here we are six years later, and I've, I've found how to cope going through this. I've found a lot of great coping tools, like using cannabinoid oil, which is a marijuana derivative that keeps my nervous system relaxed, and uh, Botox for my skull to keep my headaches down. So I got permanent headaches from the, uh, the incident, and uh, I'm... I'm doing pretty good. Well, I'm delighted to hear that, but it seems to me that uh, the, the progress you've made has been self-directed, uh, and you haven't had yep. the kind of support that should be available to you and to all veterans. You really have to fight for it every step of the way, and they will tell you no up front. Like, uh, most initial uh, claims, are, a majority of them are denied early on the onset, and then it's interesting. We tell everybody to appeal, and 60, uh, 60% of second appeals are approved. So what kind of system is that? It's a insurance model scheme that you know knows that uh, a soldier is trained never to uh, show weakness, uh, to suck it up and soldier on, and they exploit that with the new Veterans Charter. They know that we don't want to say that we're hurt, and uh, it, it truly exploits it. So you know the advocacy work that we do, aside from the lawsuit, is vital to make sure that veterans uh, finish their fight with veteran affairs and you know with complex injuries from uh, PTSD and blast injuries and gunshot wounds these kind of uh, clusters of claim multiple uh, injuries th- these soldiers uh, probably take at least a decade a majority of them to finalize their claims with with veteran affairs canada it's it's pretty terrible and right now we're in the middle of a backlog of 30,000 uh, soldiers backlogged uh, for claims and, you know, they, they came in 2015 saying, oh, we're going to hire 450 more uh, case managers. And uh, and here we are two years later, and they, you know, they got 30,000 uh, uh, backlog. And they said they opened 12 offices, but they got this huge backlog. Now here what's happened is they, they've committed like $45 million to deal with the backlog. And really this plays into money in the pockets of the bureaucrats because what happens in Charlottetown where the headquarters is, they simply – go to their buddies who retired uh, from back in Charlottetown and bring them in to uh, double dip off their pension and then create, uh, get some more bucks uh, to, to beat down this backlog. Meanwhile, the government boasts about uh, doing all these great things and uh, fighting tooth and nail and playing politics in the House. 
And uh, but meanwhile, they're saving tons of money because of this backlog. For yeah. people are waiting well over a year. You know, when I saw those uh, social media advertisements from Veterans Affairs Canada telling me how well they were doing, and they've been on recently, about how they've provided funds for caregivers, about how they've taken care of the veterans, about how the pensions are in place. One word came to mind, liars. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. To Mark Birchell and Aaron Bedard, Equitas Society, I just posted on Twitter at The Roy Green Show. I just posted the website, Equitas Society. You, my, my computer's not agreeing with me, so but the information for the uh, for the walk is, is on there, right? That's right. If you, uh, at the equitassociety.ca website, you click on the Walk for Veterans, and it has uh, all of the information about the uh, different events that are happening in eight okay. cities right across the country, coast to coast. So, Aaron, what's the story behind the Walk for Veterans, and what, what, what can people do to get engaged? Well, just quickly, uh, you know, 100 years ago, World War One ended. It's the armistice year, 100-year anniversary. And in 1923, there was over 180 veterans in Canada all trying to fight over each other to to get their voices heard. So they formed the Royal Canadian Legion, an umbrella organization, to bring them all together to speak with one voice. That's our biggest problem today is we aren't speaking with one voice. We're incredibly splintered. And, uh, you know, out of 600,000 veterans in Canada, the Royal Canadian Legion only has 60,000 in there in their, uh, their ranks right now. So there's a big gap, and they're not uh, doing enough online. So um, the long-term goal of the Canadian Walk for Veterans is to be able to run this in every city in Canada in the years ahead as it grows, and uh, to be able to raise funding to create our own online veteran organization modeled after the uh, the Americans Iraq Afghanistan Veterans Association that's been around since 2006, who... You know, they, they did a poll a couple months ago. They didn't like their Secretary of uh, Veteran Affairs, and they uh, did a poll, and it was like 95% didn't like what the job he was doing. Well, they went to uh, Washington. He was fired within a week, and then they suggested somebody else in the last month. They did another poll, uh, and they didn't like that guy, so he's out. You know, they speak with an incredibly strong voice, united. So that's where we want to get. And uh, with the walk, it's an opportunity for the general public to be able to walk with veterans and to be able to learn their stories. And um, with uh, Remembrance Day, it's, you know, a very uh, a somber uh, occasion. Mm-hmm. And there's not a great connection between uh, the public and the veterans. They often march in and it's a moment of silence and they march off and they often will go off and spend time together right. themselves to, to uh, catch up and reminisce. So tell and us quickly, tell us quickly, where, what's, what cities is the walk taking place in? Okay. Okay, so it's, it's taking place in Victoria, Vancouver, Edmonton, uh, Kingston, Ottawa, Fredericton, Halifax, and St. John's, Newfoundland. Okay, so you can go to equitasociety.ca, and you can find the Walk for Veterans June the 3rd. Get involved, get engaged, support the veterans, and the veterans get involved and get engaged, and you'll be a stronger voice for yourselves, and you know you have Canadians. Canadians have your backs. Mark, thank you so much. Aaron, thank you, and all the very best, and thank you for your thank service you. to Canada, gentlemen. Roy, thank you for, as always, for your support for the, uh, and thank you for your support for the Canadian Walk for Veterans. Well, I don't say it very often, but I was a member of the uh, Canadian, of the RCNR at one time in my life, Royal Canadian Naval Reserve, and uh, I, had the, I had the exalted rank of Ordinary Seaman Standard, which is the lowest rank in the Navy. Yes, sir. And I fought hard to stay there. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Awesome. Thanks, Roy. All the best. Thank you, Roy. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Well, there is an individual who has told the New York Times, podcasters, that he's an ISIS assassin and that he's living quite comfortably and unchallenged in the city of Toronto. He's quite enjoying himself. And that issue came up in Parliament yesterday. And Candace Bergen, the uh, House leader for the Conservative Party, uh, brought it up with the public, affair, public safety minister, Ralph Goodale. And prior to that, James Bazan, the uh, colleague of Ms. Bergen, brought up the issue of this ISIS killer with the prime minister, I said something really strange. Ms. Bergen, thank you very much for taking the time. And all this stuff, all my talk about strange and odd, that, that, those are my words. I know they're not yours. Thank well, you. For, 
I uh, yeah, thanks, Roy. No, I I think we're all shaking our heads and just trying to trying to figure out what this prime minister is is thinking, what he's doing to our country. So tell us first, please, what happened when your colleague brought up this self-admitted ISIS killer to the prime minister? What did Mr. Trudeau say? Well, to just give a little bit of context, this person, uh, as you said, spoke to the New York Times, and there's been an, uh, a podcast, uh, they're kind of releasing chapter by chapter, uh, daily or every other day. I just listened to it for the first time, actually, uh, uh, I guess it was, was yesterday morning. Um, so this individual, there, there's no disputing he went to Syria to, to fight with ISIS. Uh, when you hear him um, recount how he executed individuals, uh, how he shot them in the back of the head, in the, in the previous podcast, um, which my colleague James Bazan had referred to, he talked about the smell of blood. I mean, it was it was incredibly and chilling. Chillingly, it was very very graphic uh, and and quite quite something to listen to. James Bazan asked the prime minister about this on Thursday. How how is an individual like this? walking around the streets of Canada freely. And now we know what the Prime Minister had said about ISIS terrorists returning. We know what he said previously. As you said, he said they could be an extraordinarily powerful voice. But I think we all expected that when somebody presents themselves and brags about what they've done, that the Prime Minister will finally say, these individuals have to be taken off the street. They have to be held accountable for what they've done. Uh, you know, that's what we would expect of our Prime Minister. But Justin accused James Bazan of being divisive. Uh, I, I don't know how being how you can be divisive if you want to get terrorists off the street and, and uh, in prison. I, I don't consider that divisive, but that that's what happened on Thursday. That's a very very strange word to use. You're talking about someone who, as you say, very graphically described how he murdered people on behalf of as as a member of ISIS, and the prime minister says. To bring that up and say he shouldn't be on the streets of Canada roaming about freely, he says that's divisive. Mr. Trudeau either is more unfamiliar with the English language than I suspected, or he is familiar with the English language, in which case the problem becomes even more significant. Now, what what happened between you and Mr. Goodale, the public safety minister, yesterday? Well, I, when I listened to the podcast, uh, what this person said a uh, couple of times, he was talking about how he had to psych himself up to shoot uh, the, the to execute these these uh, these innocent people, and so he said, "I, I, I you know, I, I was hard, but I told myself." And Roy, he was very calm. He talked very quietly. You know, sounded very gentle. Yeah, whatever. He said, uh, "I'm not going to be held accountable." I, I thought to myself, "I'm, I'm not going to be accountable," and these people deserve it. He actually said it twice. I'm not going to be accountable. So I, I was just, I was so appalled by this. Um, we, we, for so many reasons, obviously. So I asked the Minister of Public Safety yesterday what the government was going to do. I said, you have to know he's out there. If he's talking freely to the, to the media, you, the, 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 you've got to be able to find a way to apprehend him. And of course, Ralph just said, oh, I can't talk about operational matters. It's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, Listen, honestly, Roy, I think our RCMP and CSIS are doing, I think, the best that they can. But when the Prime Minister, for the last year, has sent the signal and the message out that he thinks ISIS terrorists can be rehabilitated and reintegrated back into society, and let's just help them with some poetry lessons, and let's just watch them turn away from their hateful ideology, uh, that's where the problem lies. Instead of the Prime Minister taking a strong and a tough stand and then let the RCMP do their work and do their investigations, uh, I, I think, I think he's, he's really hampering their ability by his attitude and his outlook on this. He, uh, he seems quite committed to this. Uh, when, when he speaks, he seems quite committed to the, the whole notion that he put forward. He did the right thing with Cotter. He's doing the right thing now by supporting this self-admitted ISIS killer being in Canada. He just does not seem to have any any concerns. And, and when a and when a, a Canadian father um, at one of his town halls brought up the issue of 
being concerned about ISIS returnees because this father has two young girls, Mr. Trudeau started to talk about how Canada has always helped those who needed help and those who were weak and how immigrants and immigration has always helped this country as though ISIS were ISIS members were some sort of specially qualified individuals to come to Canada and help build this country. I, I don't I don't understand. I, I don't know where to begin to try to get a grasp on on wh- where he's coming from. I, I, I don't know if it's na- he's either incredibly naive on on the reality that terrorism uh, that it presents a major risk to Canadians or he's choosing to uh, to turn a blind eye. I, I don't know what it is either. Uh, you know, and yesterday, as, as I said, when I listened to this podcast, this terrorist talked about how uh, he was part part of the training that he received. He was actually trained with the individuals that carried out the Paris attack, and they were trained to, they were told, when you go back to your home country and you infiltrate there and here are major landmarks that you need to go and try to target, they're actually trained to come back, to go back home and to to attack when they're back. So for for Justin Trudeau to not recognize this, to not see this, uh, is, I, I don't know, it's, it not, it's incompetence, it's naivety, it's out of touch uh, to, the, to the highest degree, and it's putting the safety of Canadians at risk. It's just doing, doing so many things that don't reflect who we are as Canadians. Mr. Goodill didn't look particularly comfortable while he was defending the position put forward by our Prime Minister. You were there. I mean, you have a better idea. You know, Mr. Goodell, I don't. But while I was looking at him on the screen, I, I thought, he doesn't look like he's really believing what he's saying. So how, I, how can you defend, how can anybody defend uh, a terrorist who has executed people being yeah. able to walk around the streets freely in Toronto? Yeah. How can anybody defend that? It's not political anymore. It's got nothing to do with, with political parties uh, confronting one another. It has to do with providing safety and security for the country. And when Mr. Trudeau is confronted with issues like this, he repeatedly says, oh, we're not like the other side, as in conservatives. We don't, we don't do what you did for 10 years. We have a, an agenda of bringing people together. And I, I, I sometimes, well, I, I just don't know what the man is thinking you know, he, uh, he, he's done this on, on other issues whereby he's been irresponsible and naive in his response. And then instead of admitting it and then trying to fix the problem, he doubles down on it. And I'll give you an example. The illegal border crossers. The reason that so many people, 20,000 last year, were, were you know, in the thousands already of people who are coming across our border illegally from the U.S., the reason that happened is because Trudeau naively, irresponsibly, you know, wanting to be the cool kid on the block, sent out this tweet, welcome, hashtag welcome to Canada. And that thus began the, the, the flow. But now he can't admit that there's a problem that has to be fixed. People are jumping the queue. They're coming to Canada uh, seeking so-called asylum when they're coming from North Dakota, which is, I'm right now about an hour from North Dakota, right by my riding, Roy, and I can tell you no one's being persecuted in, in North Dakota. But this is what Trudeau does. He creates problems because he's irresponsible and naive and because he's motivated by his own self-promotion. And then instead of admitting it and fixing the problem, he doubles down and he makes it worse. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it on, on illegal border crossers, and right now I think we're seeing it unfold before our eyes with, uh, with terrorists who are walking around Canada. Now, this individual we're talking about who told the New York Times that he was an assassin for ISIS is, uh, is recanting what he said. He's told the CBC, uh, I did not. You can put me through a polygraph, and it will prove that I didn't kill anyone. Um, and uh, I'm just reading from Brian Lilly's uh, post here. When asked why, he told Times reporter Rudmini Kalimachi that he participated in an execution whose Afai said, I was being childish. I was describing what I saw, and basically I was close enough to think it was me. Um, doesn't sound terribly convincing, and it doesn't change the fact that he said what he said to the New York Times, and the response from the government is, to what he said to the New York Times, is if you argue about it, you're being divisive. And it, it doesn't change the fact 
that he went to Syria to fight with ISIS terrorists. That's right, and that's a crime. He didn't. He didn't go. Yes, that's a crime. He didn't go there to. Uh, you know, he wasn't there as a missionary. He went there to fight with them. Yeah. That in and of itself is a crime. And I mean, I think anybody. We would. I would trust the RCMP. Ceases. They, they can investigate. They can. They'll be able to 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 know what happened, and and they can find out. Listen. You will recall recently a, a Somalian kidnapper who kidnapped Amanda Lidhorst. The RCMP were able to convict him, and uh, so the RCMP, I trust them. They, they can do the, their job very well. Mm-hmm. But this individual went to Syria to fight with ISIS. That's, right. That's a crime, and he presents a threat to Canadians. There's no doubt. We also had a story, Global News had a story last week or the week before, that uh, a government report suggests that returning ISIS members may pose a chemical weapons threat to Canada. And yet we still have Mr. Trudeau suggesting they could do extraordinarily positive things for this country. This has to stop. I, I agree with you. And I mean, I think, I think what Canadians need to do is they need to be calling their liberal, uh, if they have a liberal MP, call them, phone them, phone them, get, get their friends to phone them. Um, you know, letters are good, emails are good, but... The liberal, the liberal caucus has got to get the message that their their prime minister, that prime minister, is failing miserably, and we have to act. Um, I mean, we can ask questions in question period. I'm glad we're talking about it today, Roy, but I really believe Canadians need to act, and they need to let liberal MPs know this kind of irresponsible behavior from our prime minister on so many fronts has to stop. Ms. Bergen is get his head out of the sand. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Good to talk with you. Thanks for doing this. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML.